Welcome back to another edition of COINTELPRO. I'm Austin, and I'm here with Mike Spencer for the next installment in our False Flag series. We're joined today by Dr. Arlene Diaz, a professor of history at Indiana University who writes about Venezuela, the Spanish Caribbean, and Brazil. She is currently working on a book for UNC Press about espionage, media manipulation, and the forging of the U.S. empire. Dr. Diaz, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Last time, we talked with Dr. Diaz's colleague, Peter Guardino, about the beginning of the Mexican-American War, a conflict that began when President James Polk ordered Zachary Taylor to cross into Mexico. Polk's invasion fell under Mexican cavalry attack in an event that was portrayed by the administration as an attack that spilled American blood on American soil. Today, we turn to the 1890s, to the close of the frontier, and to the dawn of modern U.S. imperialism. Or at least the dawn of U.S. imperialism, if you ignore the countless invasions of Latin America, economic hegemony, or the spread of Anglo-American society across the continent. In 1859, the British novelist Anthony Trollope wrote of Cuban-U.S. relations that, quote, the trade of this country is falling into the hands of Americans from the States. Havana will soon become as much American as New Orleans. U.S. sustained process of westward expansion is going to culminate in the second half of the 1840s with the annexation of the Republic of Texas in 1845, the formal acquisition of the disputed Oregon Territory in 1846, and most importantly, the wrestling uh, from Mexico of one of uh, more than half of its national territory in, in 1848. However, after winning the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, President James Polk tried to pursue further territorial expansion. by And what he did is that he tried to purchase Cuba for $100 million, uh, something that was, of course, repudiated by, by Spain. But this was probably the first U.S. Uh, significant U.S. As- attempt to expand beyond its contiguous uh, territories. Behind this, this idea of freeing Cuba from Spanish control uh, in order to establish free trade with the, uh, um, with the island, the thing is that at this moment in time, there was a great market for U.S. exports. Uh, of course, you know, Cuba was the chief supplier of sugar for the United States. And many planters in the United States were also seeking to acquire new land and new sources of slaves. And here is where Cuba becomes so so um, relevant for the United States. At that time, President Zachary Taylor was reluctant to further land acquisitions. Therefore, uh, expansionism took the form of clandestine filibustering expeditions. These are illegal maritime expeditions. And there were a number of them. So you may have remember, you know, William Walker, a famous expansionist project in Nicaragua, 1855. But relevant in the case of Cuba is uh, Narciso Lopez, who was actually Venezuelan. And he, along with um, U.S. leadership and other Southern veterans of the U.S.-Mexican War, uh, they did three different expeditions to liberate Cuba from Spain and with the idea of annexing Cuba to the United States. While we have those filibustering, you know, illegal expeditions, uh, we could say that at this moment in time, United States used more soft power, that is economic domination, to achieve more of a grip on, you know, control uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean. So uh, more and more, we're going to see that um, places like Cuba and Puerto Rico 
are going to become more dependent on U.S. market as, a, as the primary co- uh, consumer of uh, sugar and exports. So, for example, in 1856-59, the United States stood as the single largest market for the two islands, Cuba and Puerto Rico, and they abs- uh, the U.S. absorbed uh, 44% of Cuban exports and 49% of Puerto Rico. Now, compare that then in... Uh, 1894, when the United States received almost 90% of Cuban total exports and provided 40% of its imports. Cuba was uh, was a more engaged economically with the United States and with uh, Spain by the late 19th century. In the 1890s, however, um, that tendency towards soft power began to wane. The closing of the frontier had bred an anxiety among Americans about the role of frontier in making their society function. It was at this time that it became popular to advocate for the expansion of the U.S. military to include a world-class navy. Jingoists, like Theodore Roosevelt, called for the U.S. to expand its reach by using this modernized navy. I don't know this word. (laughs) Jingoists. Okay, I thought that's how you pronounce it. Like, you know, like jingoism? I don't know what jingoism is. So jingoism is a term that refers to like a group of British uh, like politicians who always wanted to use the hard powers of the British Empire to prove its superiority. And it became used frequently in the 1890s uh, to explain a group that became increasingly prominent in this time period we're talking about now for their desire to use the American military to prove the superiority of the United States. Don't don't ask me to explain why the people in Britain were called jingos, but that is the the, the origin of the term. And and it it gets pretty close uh or you can see why uh people who thought that way in the United States could uh, you know, be referred to that that way. It's just such a funny, like sounding word. I don't know. Like, well, and we tend to use it today. It's kind of like a floating signifier now, yeah. right? It, you know, it's like it, it, you can say it, and people, you know, kind of like nod, and they'll they'll know. You know, it just sounds like a word that doesn't mean like nationalism and imperialism. You know, <laughs> it seems very playful. Yeah. Uh, for considering that like Dick Cheney is a jingoist, you know, like yeah. <laughs> well, come on around for my, for my place for a beer and a game of jingo, some jingoism with, with tricky Dick. So the jingoists all turn their eyes towards places like Cuba where the Spanish Empire's control had been under pressure for decades. This war did not begin in 1895. I think we, we need to talk about um, Cuba's first uh, war of independence in 1868, that actually the war in 1895 is the continuation of a war that had not ended in, in, in 1878 or in the, the little ones that, that followed. Starting in 1868, in eastern Cuba, there was a major, um, you know, um, wealthy white planter, Carlos Manuel de Céspedes. Uh, and on October 10th, 1868, uh, 
he made a call for Cuba's political independence from Spain and the abolition of slavery. Many of the of the uh, officials, you know, the people in the high ranks of, of the of the military, were all from that area of eastern Cuba, Camagüey, uh, Las Villas, and uh, many of them were white. Were also wealthy, you know, people of of uh, that had some standing in those communities. Um, and as you can imagine, once uh, Céspedes calls for the abolition of slavery, many slaves are going to actually join them, ex-slaves, looking for their freedom. So more and more, a lot of the um, uh, soldiers they're going to have um, are going to be ex-slaves or freed people of African ancestry, so on and so forth. That was used by the Spaniards to claim, see, you know, this is a race war. By 1878, uh, the Spaniards um, and, and these po- these uh, po- politics of dividing, uh, demoralizing uh, the insurgents bear fruit, and um, it was many of these uh, white, um, more privileged um, leaders who are going to sign a peace treaty for the fighters for these other insurgents, uh, uh, including Murato General. Um, Antonio Maceo, he did not uh, accept that peace treaty. Actually, he famous for, for his protest for that. Um, many of these insurgents um, are going to, um, were allowed to leave the island, and many of them actually ended up in New York City and New Orleans. And uh, from there, they're going to start to prepare to come back and, and continue the war. That is the War of 1895. Between 1880 and 1895, there were a variety of visions for the future Cuba among the immigrant community in the U.S. Those years, 1880 and 1895, we find um, Jose Martí, the very famous in, uh, Cuban intellectual, trying to help to unite all of those Cubans. Because in that community, emigre community in New York, as well as in the island, you're going to find people with different uh, ideas about their relationship with uh, the United States. You're going to find first people who who are annexionists, people who want Cuba to become part of the U.S. And those were the ones who were related to those uh, expeditions that we talked about before, the Narciso Lopez one who were also slaveholders, and they thought that their best bet to maintain their property, quote-unquote, was by being a state of the United States. There are going to be people who want, um, who were wealthy and really wanted just reforms from Spain. And by that, um, we mean that they wanted, they thought that Spain, they wanted to maintain their, their links with Spain, but they wanted to have more control of the Cuban government. And those are called in the late 1890s autonomists. And then there are going to be the ones who want full independence. So you're going to find the, you know, the, the interest there. So the wealthy are going to be mostly in the autonomist, uh, annexionist side. And then mulatos, blacks, whites are going to be more together with uh, being full independence. Especially in Cuba, um, the insurgents are going to be more and more radicalized to be actually what they want is full independence. This is the critical point in the development of U.S.-Cuban relations. 
the views of wealthy Cubans in the U.S. and on the island became aligned with the interests of the Anglo-Americans. And rather than leave it up to the Cubans to decide, the U.S. and its imperialist ambitions stepped in. During this time, the United States was starting, a lot of people were starting to look outside the, the, you know, the, the mainland of the United States. And you know, there's a world out there. But also that was informed with what was going on inside the United States, which was you know, the Indian Wars, the Mexicans, African-Americans, the Chinese, all of those um, people who, who Anglo-Americans did not believe were part of the American nation. Uh, inform the ways they will see people who are non-Westerners, in this, in this case, Cuba. So when war correspondents, for instance, and we can talk a lot about them, uh, go to a place like Cuba, you know, they are going to, um, there's, a, there's some stories here, for example, you know, the, the New York Herald had sent, Gordon Bennett had sent a war correspondent to, to Africa looking for Dr. Livingstone. Right. And he made a huge deal about, you know, uh, being the heroes of going into these savage, savage, quote unquote, places to bring what the truth. And a lot of that actually is replicated then again in Cuba in the 1860s and then again in 1890s. So when these people go there, you know, they are the way they're going to describe Cubans are, are going to be in terms that make sense to the American people. And and at that time, you know, the the idea was that um, that blacks were not full human beings, um, that they were savages, that they are more closer to to nature because they are they don't have reason. So this, they're going to use the same tropes to describe the Cubans. All of that to justify the idea that Cubans cannot govern themselves. They cannot have you know self government. So those representations served a purpose and therefore to justify Anglo-American expansionism over Cuba. These people, do, for example, do not know how to, what to do with their lands, so on and so forth. So therefore, the Americans have to come to teach them you know, how to be, quote unquote, productive. And there's nothing exceptional about these values. This is Rudyard Kipling's imperialism. It's the white man's burden. We had talked um, last week about how President Polk's administration blundered its way through its war with Mexico. With Santa Ana exiled to Cuba, Polk was convinced by what existed of the intelligence apparatus and the state that he should let Santa Ana return to Mexico, where he would quickly end Mexican opposition to the U.S. invasion. And you can listen back to episode 41 to hear more, but suffice to say, uh, he didn't do that. With the advent of the modern American state came an increasingly capable federal government. But security, intelligence, surveillance, and infiltration was still often hired out to private firms. Most prominent among these firms, at least to my 21st century mind, was Pinkerton a security and detective agency that began working for the U.S. in the 1860s. But after the Civil War, the main purpose of the U.S. military and the State Department was to put down labor uprisings. Pinkerton agents would infiltrate and intimidate organized labor. 
But in 1892, the violent tactics used by the Pinkertons in the state to quell the homestead strikes left 16 dead and 23 wounded. See, here's not one of these words that sounds playful, but like, it, you know, it's just <laughs> right, the Pinkertons. Right. Why are you mad at the jingoist Pinkertons? Right, right. So in 1893, Congress passed the Anti-Pinkerton Acts, uh, curtailing the state's use of private firms for intelligence, espionage, and security. But the Pinkertons didn't go away. In fact, they still exist as a subsidiary of Securitas AB. Dr. Diaz, your research has uncovered um, new information about what Pinkerton got up to in the years after 1893. What can you tell us about your latest research? I have put together spy reports from Spain because, as I remember, you know, they had consuls and in the United States in the 19th century, and they hired U.S. Um, secret agents, you know, for example, the Pinkertons. So the Pinkerton uh, National Detective Agency. So they use espionage to infiltrate within the Cubans in New York and New Orleans. And then they use that information to weaponize, to use it, you know, through the through newspapers, because they understood the importance of the U.S. readership to know what, quote unquote, they thought should be the truth about the war. What were the nature of the opinions that they were trying to form? The American public, you know, with their experience, for example, with the U.S.-Mexican War, everything that the, that was Spanish was not very well looked at. Or being Catholic, for instance. Being Spaniard was to be barbaric, was to be cruel, was to be backward. And many of the media are going to, you know, use those tropes to communicate and sell more newspapers. And here's the other thing. This was a business. A An article is a commodity that has to sell, that has to create attention of the readers um, and they're going to write something that they, that the readers are going to be able to understand not for the last time American public opinion in the build-up to 1898 was the subject of propaganda and the target of statecraft both domestic and foreign both Spanish and U.S. efforts to sway the opinions of Cubans and Anglo-Americans came to a head when the U.S. sent the USS Maine to Havana Harbor as a symbolic pacifier for civil unrest in the city. Americans and Cuban elites were growing increasingly concerned about the popular reaction to the Spanish partition of the island, which had sent nearly one-third of Cubans into concentration camps. The intensifying repression in Cuba and efforts to foment war in the U.S. had set the stage for what came next. On February 15, 1898, the USS Maine exploded. The story was immediately publicized across the U.S. as an act of war. In 1976, almost 80 years later, a U.S. Navy dive team would conclude that the Maine had not been sabotaged or struck by a mine, as the papers would write, but instead had a fire on board that ignited the magazine. But the U.S. State Department and business owners had been priming the American public for just such a moment. After three years of trickling out anti-Spanish propaganda, 
the sensationalist journalism machine kicked into high gear after the sinking of the Maine. The Pinkertons were in Havana when that happened, hired by the Spaniards. What is happening here is that at that point in time, U.S. business owners are, are going to, and, and, some, and a lot of people in, um, in the United States, are going to be very impatient with the United States government, especially the president, because they felt that, that the U.S. was not doing enough, that they were doing actually nothing. And they wanted, you know, let's let's end with this. This is taking like three years, uh, you know, four years now. We need to do something. Newspapers were very also wanting to maintain suspense and to find that particular um, news that would break in the war. What I'm arguing here is that this uh, business, which was the newspaper business, and it was not only Hearst or Pulitzer. It doesn't have to be the yellow journalism. There were there were lots of them were in Havana, looking, even inventing news, because they wanted to instill to they wanted to push U.S. government to intervene in Cuba. The main affair uh, doesn't appear uh, in in all of you know in this research. It's not it's not the key date. That's not what I'm going to be arguing. Uh, this was actually something created by the media to justify the United States uh, intervention. But uh, I will be arguing that actually it was not 1898, 1898 the, the key date. 1897 is going to be a key date because in August of 1897, the prime minister in Spain uh, was uh, killed. With that, the United States fine, you know, th- thought, okay, now we can probably, with this more liberal guy, uh, we're going to uh, be able to uh, push for autonomy for Cuba, which was what U.S. business owners in Cuba wanted, okay, to maintain Cuba under, under Spanish control. At the same time, that is, those are the years in which U.S. newspapers are actually uh, enhancing technologically, you know, they're starting to put more pictures, you know, it's like that, like the the year when the ethos of, of what we know as modern U.S. newspapers was conceived. There was an info war at that time. In the fog of information, uh, Cubans in, in uh, New York, those insurgents that were working from there, there's going to be like a fog of war, like a uh, a lot of what happened in 1878 with the the peace treaty is going to be reenacted at that time in 1897 in New York. So by the time that you have the incident with the USS Maine, the seeds of this are already very firmly sown. Absolutely. So that's a, in, in short, that that is correct. So at that time, when the insurgency in Cuba was very likely to win the war, or perceived to be so, and the Cubans make very clear that they would not accept autonomy. Wealthy white Cubans are going to do like a coup d'état in the in the, what was the Cuban Revolutionary Party or the Cuban Junta in New York. They're going to take control of the junta in in January of eighteen ninety eight and started to collaborate with the United States. So those are going to be the autonomists and annexionists. Right who are going to push the Cuban people to the side and 
uh, rather than have black insurgents rule Cuba, quote unquote. So while the public and the media crystallize its understanding of Cuba around the supposed sabotage of the main, the foundation for U.S. involvement in the conflict had already been laid. That's right. What mattered most wasn't any specific event. What was most important were the motivations of Anglo-Americans and Cuban annexationists. But it's difficult to say who ultimately won here. Cuba didn't become a part of the United States, but thanks to the post-war agreements like the Platt Amendment, Cuba became a sort of vassal of U.S. authority. Though technically a treaty between the two countries, the Platt Amendment was an addendum to the new Cuban constitution. Senator Henry Teller's amendment to the U.S. declaration of war had forbidden the U.S. from annexing Cuba, but the Platt Amendment effectively stripped Cuba of its sovereignty, articulating a wide range of reasons for when and why the U.S. would intervene there. It would go on to provide the basis for the U.S. to invade Cuba again in 1906, 1912, 1917, and 1920. I think that there are a number of things that are interesting here, and he is, and it is, uh, and I don't think this is should be new, is the power of U.S. business interest in U.S. For, foreign, you know, dictating U.S. foreign policy. Also, the fact that, again, 1898 would be an unfinished war, that then we're going to see the continuation in 18, 1959 with the Cuban Revolution, you know, the, that struggle for sovereignty uh, of the Cuban people. What are your thoughts on sort of the, this broader argument that we're making? Because the, the, our justification for, for doing this, uh, this series is, is an apprehension that, that some, something like these events could, that we're focusing on could happen again in, in the present time and be used to, uh, you know, engineer consent for, for the next conflict. I, th- I think the War of, of 1898, or you know, the Spanish-Cuban-American War, is an excellent example of how uh, the media is also a business, and we need to and we need to remember that. And it's a business that that um, protects or that you know whose interests are also with the great business community. What gets published, how it gets published, silences or opinions many times uh, are bended, you know, according to to the needs of, of that community. Uh, and this is not something new. This is not something that happened during the Second World War. Actually, um, I'm arguing that that, actually, that that was clearly in 1890s, and I, I'm seeing the beginnings of that actually in the 1860s. This is an independently produced podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at COINTELPROPOD and support more of our work on our Patreon page. The link is in the show notes and in our Twitter bio. We'll see you next week on COINTELPRO.